in other words, the, the mortgage is kind of coming due. And is well, a balloon, balloon, one of those probably. balloon mortgages. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's coming due. And if he didn't have a bu another buyer quickly, he's going to lose the building. So now we have a very motivated what? You know, seller. seller. A little different than yes. six months ago, right? So, so we went back and forth. It still wasn't worth 3.9, regardless of the fact. I think we settled on 3.3. And um, ended up appraising for 3.9, which was which was great because there's already built in kind of you know equity. Equity. Um, but he was motivated, right? So you you know I always say to people, and I think there's a lesson there in that you have to be willing to walk away. You can't just you know be so excited about a project and in love with it that you're going to make a wrong financial decision. You know if you've written, you've underwritten the deal, you've done your financial analysis. Don't be, don't be afraid to walk away because if, if it's the right deal, you know, and it's the right project, things will happen. And that was a perfect example. We walked away. We said, we can't make it work for your number. There's no way. Right. And we raise money from investors, right? So we need to make sure we, 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 we have the right finances in place so that we can get our investors the returns, right? Welcome to Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here's your host, Annette Talee. Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Talee, and my guest today is Liz Fercloth. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much, Annette, for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. I am super excited to have you. Uh, I had uh, your partner on my podcast before, so I'm very excited to have you today. So guys, let me tell you a little bit about Liz. She co-founded the, the Rosa Group in 2005 with her husband, Matt. The Rosa Group, based in Trenton, New Jersey, is an owner of commercial and real and residential property with a mission to transform lives through real estate. The Rosa has vast experience in bringing properties to their highest and best use, which includes repositioning single-family homes, multifamily, apartment buildings, mixed-use retail and office space. The company controls close to 700 units of residential and commercial assets throughout the East Coast. Liz is the co-founder of the Real Estate Invest Her uh, community, a platform to empower women to live financially free and balanced lives through over 25 meetups across the U.S. and Canada, and an online community and membership that offers accountability and mentorship for women to take their business to the next level. She is the co-host of the Real Estate Invest Her Show, a podcast providing straight talk strategies along with inspiration for successful women who share their journey. Awesome, Liz. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I would love for you to tell us, how did you get into real estate? Sure. So, you know, I wish there was just like this glorious story that most of us have, <laughs> like the lightning bulb comes down to do it, you know, invest in real estate. But it didn't quite happen like that. You know, with my, my husband and I, I was, um, I met him and, you know, we were, you know, I was, on, I was on track to work very hard. I was um, about to get into a consulting job. I was right out of graduate schools in my early 20s. And I met my husband who was working very hard at a uh, engineering company. And, you know, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We both came from very, you know, very strong middle-class families where you work very hard, you know, in a job and, and you, you know, that's just the traditional path, so to speak. 
And reading that book opened my eyes to just so many different concepts, right? You know, just the idea of passive income. Oh, wow, you can build something that earns you money versus you having to work for it, right? And it's just this whole paradigm shift, uh, especially in my 20s. I was still young, you know, to kind of like, this is, I can take this path or, or you know, or we can start building towards a new path. And, you know, at that time, we... Um, we took a bunch of courses. It was like, let's do this. You know, we didn't really have much money. We didn't have any experience. Uh, we were in our twenties, so no one really took us seriously, but, um, we said, let's do it. Let's, let's at least take some courses, learn what we can and, and take the plunge. Uh, cause we knew that that was kind of the path we wanted to take even a small way in a, in a, in a step-by-step way. So we took a bunch of courses and local RIA group for about a year and, uh, finally took the plunge and said, okay, let's make some offers. And we offered, um, you know, we actually found it by calling for rent ads at the time in the, in the newspaper. I know I feel like I'm a dinosaur here. I'm like 95 <laughs> years old, but that's, you know, that's, that was like pre-internet really, you know, uh, the internet may have been sort of getting going, but in terms of where we are now, it was like COVID night and day. So for rent, for rent ads and we found a buyer, we found someone who's, I'm sorry, a seller who was looking to sell his duplex. So our first investment was a duplex right outside of Philadelphia. And we, uh, we got the down payment from my father. He loaned us the money, 30,000. And, uh, you know, kind of scraped together the money to renovate. And, uh, you know, we, we held it for about a year or so. And then we ended up moving to New Jersey and really starting our investing career there. We, we, we kind of held that property for a short time, but did like a 1031 into that and, and kind of advanced there. But yeah, that was our first project. It took us about a year to study and to feel comfortable and then take the plunge into making it happen. So that's so funny. We have a lot of parallels. It took us a, a year to find our first property and we bought a duplex. Okay. Were you looking for a multifamily or if it's just what you have happened to have, uh, find? We yeah. I don't know if we were that strategic, uh, to, to, in a lot of ways when we started, but yeah, we were, we were just looking for an Whatever opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the area that we were looking in just so happened to be, you know, right outside of Philadelphia, older homes, you know, highly densely populated. So by nature, you're going to find more smaller multis, which was this little community was full of really to find a single family would have been harder to find unless you found like, it was more like row homes. It was actually an attached home on both sides. So, um, you're going to find a lot more of those small multis in that area, but yeah, it wasn't really a strategic move by, by any means, but more so what was up, you know, what, what, what was in our backyard. Right. And we, when you started, were you planning to do flips buy and hold or you just rentals? What, what were your, what was your plan? Yeah. <laughs> I wish we had a little more of a strategic plan. I will say that, but Hey, you know, you live and learn, you know, 15 years later, you get a little smarter in some ways. Um, you know, when we started, we got involved with a lot of different things. So we bought that duplex and then we started flipping and then we bought like raw land. We bought a commercial. We just got into a lot of different things very quickly. I don't ever suggest that to people. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it, it just, it dilutes you. You're not able to get good at something, you know, and, and really become masterful at it, right? You can't do a bunch of different things, become masterful at any of it. So I think that kind of took us a little longer to get our, you know, to get going. And multifamily was really the focus for us all the time. And then we really went all in um, when we got a little more focus and woke up a little bit and said, okay, let's focus. And, you know, where we really strongly went in on multifamily. And uh, that's most of our portfolio right now uh, is multifamily. But yeah, we did some flips and, and we, you know, we, we kind of dabbled in a lot of different areas until we really said, okay, let's, let's really focus on this area and make this our, our business model. 
Awesome, awesome. When we got the duplex, we were looking for multifamily uh, because okay. we just wanted the, you know, to have have the liability if one apartment was empty, we still had the income from the other one. Yeah, and that absolutely. was like our whole whole point because we wanted to make sure that we were not depending on just one income stream and that was the whole point for us to get into real estate so even with 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 the investment we were like okay we cannot afford a four unit but we can buy a duplex at least that's 50 50 right yeah so that's that's awesome the deal All right. So what type of deal are we going to talk about today? What dealer is, what type of asset was it and where was it located? Sure. Sure. So, so like I mentioned a moment ago, we really got our, our kind of our start in multifamily and we slowly grew. So we we were a duplex and then we bought some fourplexes and we were at a point in our career, um, just about five years ago and we were buying kind of small multis. 10 unit, and then we went to an 18 unit. We grew very steadily like that. We didn't go from like a duplex to a 200 unit apartment building. Um, you know, we really just grew very steadily. So at the point of, um, we, had, we had the largest asset to date was an 18 unit. We had about, about 200 units under our belt. And we got presented with a deal, uh, a 49 unit. And it was located right outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So we had always had the rule that we only invest locally, 30 minutes within our radius, because we were managing everything ourselves. We were um, leasing everything ourselves and our team. Um, so the thought of going any further was a lot, right? Because you just want to be close to your assets. So this is the first property that kind of got us moving forward in terms of like firing, finding a property management company, if we had gotten in. And a whole new world of moving from self-management to, to kind of outsourcing that management piece. So anyway, long story short, it's a 49 unit. And um, we had already closed a couple deals with another commercial broker. So when this opportunity came up, it was his listing. He gave us a call and said, hey, because, you know, once you start to build those relationships with those commercial brokers, they know you can close. You know, they start to look for you versus you looking for them, which is a good, which is a good thing. Um, but you got to close the close the deals. You got to do what you say you're going to do. And, you know, you got to show up. And I think that's the biggest frustration, right? That commercial brokers have with people. They say they want to buy these things and then they just can't put it together. Right. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be able to put these projects together. It would be my one, one recommendation to folks. So we found this deal and he, the, the, the asking price was 3.9 million. Three, you know, three, three, yeah, 3.9. And the buyer um, had owned it for about 24, about 25 years, it was basically a converted factory, which is very big in Pennsylvania. You'll find a lot of older properties getting converted to more loft style. It's a very, you know, at least in this area, it was a very popular kind of approach. But the, the gentleman was at a point where he's retiring, he wanted to move on, and that was his asking price. So we had underwrote it and did your financial, we did the financial analysis, and it really was worth somewhere between 3.2 and 3.4 was really what the number was. So we offered, I think, I think we offered 3.2 and he laughed. The broker said, listen, I love you guys, but I can't even, I'm even embarrassed to bring this to my, to my uh, seller, but I will, because I know you guys can close and I know you're good, you know, you're good, you're good uh, operators. So he did. And the buyer, the seller said, no way I'll, I'll get my price. So they went away for about six months and about six months, got another call from the commercial broker and said, you know that project project you're looking at? Uh, you know, the, um, the uh, buyer fell through for the project and the uh, seller 
his mortgage is, is um, in other words, the, the mortgage is kind of coming due. And is well, a balloon, balloon, one of those probably. balloon mortgages. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's coming due. And if he didn't have a, another buyer quickly, he's going to lose the building. So now we have a very motivated what? You know, seller. seller. A little different than yes. six months ago, right? So, so we went back and forth. It still wasn't worth 3.9, regardless of the fact. I think we settled on 3.3 and um, ended up appraising for 3.9, which was, which was great because there's already built in kind of you know, equity. Equity. Um, but he was motivated, right? So, you, you know, I, I always say to people, and I think there's a lesson there in that you have to be willing to walk away. You can't just, you know, be so excited about a project and in love with it that you're going to make a wrong financial decision. You know, if you've, run, you've underwritten the deal, you've done your financial analysis, don't be, don't be afraid to walk away because if, if it's the right deal, you know, and it's the right project, things will happen. And that was a perfect example. We walked away. We said, we can't make it work for your number. There's no way. Right. And we raise money from investors, right? So we need to make sure we, 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 we have the right finances in place so that we can get our investors the returns, right? You know, you, you know that everyone knows that it doesn't, oh yeah, I'll offer anything. <laughs> you, you don't want to put yeah. a put the building obviously in the, in the wrong financial hands and position. Um, so right. that's the deal. So, so let me let me back up a little bit. So yeah. you mentioned that how you found the deal was through a relationship with your broker. So how did you build this relationship with the brokers? Because I think that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people are afraid to to reach to out do. to brokers. Yeah. So how did this relationship start, and how did you keep this rela- relationship going? It's a great question. So we met this broker. So we were looking at we were looking to expand from New Jersey to Philadelphia. And we were looking at an 18 unit and he had this listing. He had the listing for an 18 unit. So we met, we met this particular broker on that project and, you know, really was cultivating the relationship. We, um, I think we found it online and reached out to them proactively. They didn't know us. We proactively reached out to them. And again, brokers are, they're assessing you. They are like, are these people for real? Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, do they have the money behind them to say they're going to close? You might want to buy multifamily, but it doesn't mean you're actually going to be able to do it. And three, especially in that time of the market, it was a hot market. So everyone wanted to buy multifamily. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is going to set you apart? And, and so we, we reached out to, to this broker and really just started cultivating the relationship. We also, you know, you have to tell them up front what your track record is, not to be boastful, I'm not a big fan of that, but to brokers, you need to tell them what you've done, you know, the successes you've had or the deals you've closed. Um, so they know who you're, who they're dealing with. And, and I think it was a face to face. We met with them in person. We had a really good meeting. Uh, we talked about what we were looking to do, our business plan, like, you know, this is our first full-time job, you know, and that's not, not, you don't have to have full-time, be a full-time investor to be effective, but they have to take you seriously. So I think that's the number one tip and, and whatever that looks like, you know, and I got to tell you, follow through. I was in sales. My husband was in sales. I'm very, I'm very nice. I'm very tenacious. So <laughs> if we, you know, and that's the key, right? You can't follow up once with people. Um, if you want something, you have to be, you have to do what most people don't do. They call these commercial brokers. They reach out. They do what everyone else does. Oh, I want a deal. Send me your deal. Send me your deals. They never hear from the broker. And then they wonder why they're not getting any deals. Well, let's think about doing something differently. You know, maybe sending them a handwritten card. Thank you so much for meeting with me. Um, learning about them, right? Are they into golf? Are they into sports? Are they into whatever? On that first conversation, learn something about them and then send them an article in a few weeks. Hey, I was thinking about you. 
you said something about this. I was thinking about you. Like mm. people don't do that kind of stuff. And I feel like you're trying to build a relationship with anyone. Like, uh, you know, I just, I just think you have to stand apart. How can I stand apart to these brokers beyond the money, beyond the fact that I'm going to close beyond all those things. Do I have a track record? How can I build one as quickly as I can or partner with somebody? And number two, how do I really help them, you know, and, and serve them in some way? And, and that, that, that I think we did naturally because of who we were. I mean, we do a lot of things not right. I mean, there's a lot of mistakes we make, but that was something we both, I think just that's a strength of ours, right? We have strengths and we have lots of weaknesses. Right. But do some, set yourself apart and follow through and then have a, a way to follow up with these people. Maybe it's a, they're on this, your social media, or they're on a newsletter list or whatever way they can stay. People are going to forget you if you're not in front of them. Like you're, you know, you think everyone wakes up wake, thinking, oh, they're going to think about Liz Faircloth and the deals that she wants. No, no, we all are in our own little world, right? No one does that. We've mm -hmm. got a lot going on, especially now with the world we're in. So you got to stand apart even more and have a way to follow up with people that are important to you, especially those brokers. How's it going? Is there any way I can help you? You know, most brokers yeah. don't get questions like that. Right. So, so once you had that relationship, then he found something and he brought it di directly to you, right? That's right. So that's how this, uh, building these relationships work because he knew that you were going to close. You had already closed with him on the 18 unit. Yep. Right. So that's right. It to you. Awesome. All right. So how, how did you negotiate this? I know he wanted three, nine and you were at three, two, three, two or three, three, um, when you close, but how, what were the negotiating points that you uh, pointed out to the owner so that he would accept your offer when you uh, yeah. offer low? Well, the first time he was like, this is ridiculous and laughed, right? Cause, cause he, he wasn't motivated when we went, when we went back and said, Hey, this is, this is where we're at. He was, he was motivated. And that's what the broker told us when he called us back that those six months later saying, you know, I, I think, I think we're going to be a lot closer, you know? And so when we met together, you know, I, owners don't always realize, I think something you have to keep in mind in terms of negotiating. Um, and that, it's not hard nosed negotiating. It's just like, this is what, this is what this is worth in the condition it's in. It's going to need, and, and most owners that have had something for 25 years, they don't see the maintenance that needs to be upkept or they may do, they may, but they just haven't really invested that money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even just from a leasing perspective, a lot of it was handshake agreements one of the tenants was um, onboarding tenants. There was no kind of, kind of you know, um, being in the 21st century with this building, you know, online marketing, none of that was going on. So all those things were going to be costs, right? Not that expensive, but rebranding. And, and I think when you start to present, okay, this is the business plan that I want to employ with this property. I want to take care of it, but I want to add value so we could serve our tenants better. You know, I think, I think owners start to understand some ways that you're not just, driving a hard bargain. Like this is really the nuts and bolts. This is what it costs because I'm going to have to put X, Y, and Z dollars into the property to get it to the point where, you know, I can be asking for more rent or increasing my, you know, my, my occupancy with higher rent prices. You, you can't do that if you don't add value. You know, we all know that. So I think over, and with this, it was a, it was an in-person, you know, you're, you're in-person. Um, my husband was actually part of that meeting. I wasn't, we were talking about strategy before, but it's just him and the owner. And um, you got to go there, you got to meet with people. And it's usually done over a lunch and face to face and just figuring it out and, and get it. It's not, it's not like um, most people think, at least my opinion, and maybe it depends on the deal, but a lot of the deals we've want, we've gotten and secured when it's gotten to that point, um, 
going through a broker is the toughest part, right? You say something to them, they go back to them and it's like this, this, it's like playing telephone. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get a face to face with the owner to knock out the details, to really say what's important to you, what's important to me, let's figure this out together. That's the ideal. And anytime, um, even on a larger unit, 200 unit that we, we, um, we got was face to face, you know, and it was like a, two hour lunch, you know, just mm-hmm. to talk it through. And, and then they draw it up and that all gets done. But to really get face to face with people and say, what's important to you? And it's a win-win. It's not like this, like, how do I, you know, give it all away, but you got, it's got to work for you. It's got to work for them and come and come to the middle. So. Absolutely. All right. So now going back to how did you pay for it? You mentioned that you had investors that you have to be able to give them returns. So how did mm-hmm. that, how was that structure? Sure. So, you know, most of our, most of our growth, Annette, you know, in our, in our tenure has been raising private money. So what, what ends up happening is that we work with private lenders, but all these, a lot of these apartment buildings, small or large are usually with, 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 with folks that are, you know, private investors and that are equity partners, if you will. And and they're, they're in essence like limited partners in the company. Um, And so we had already experienced with, with a few other funds, if you will, raising money. And that's really your down payment money. You know, that's your down payment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Your down payment, as well as maybe even some construction, depending on how you can structure the deal. And then you're getting a, a traditional uh, mortgage of, you know, like we, we all know of with, with a bank. We have traditional funding. But that 25%, which it was on this project, um, you know, it, it, you know that's, you have to raise that. It was about a million dollars. So we, um, at that point, had a track record. We had already raised money for our other deals and, um, you know, pretty much uh, presented it to our, our investors and saying, hey, this is what the project is, this is what we're going to be doing. Um, and this is, these are the projected returns. Um, and it's, you know, a, a traditional syndication, so to speak, where you're, where you're pooling money together and, um, and there's a general partner, limited partner structure where you're running the project, you're the day-to-day operator, if you will, us and, and, a, and a couple of folks. And then you have limited partners who are actually the, 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 the money behind being able to get to the closing table. So, so that's how we were able to do it. We raised about a million. I, I want to say it was about 14 different investors. And, you know, most of our investors and most of, most people who raise money in these types of projects, you know, you're, you're raising anywhere between like say 50,000 to maybe a few thousand, a few hundred thousand from, from folks. And these are people that are not multimillionaires. These are folks like you and I, and that are, you know, either have, have self-directed IRAs or looking to deploy, they have some savings um, or they're an accredited investor. So we work with both sophisticated and accredited investors. But I just, I say that because as folks want to build their own business and they have a track record, don't think it's just like these, these multimillionaires, you know, they're not going to give you a lot of money anyway. Quite honestly, if they're a multimillionaire, they're going to start you at a 50,000 anyway, whether they have one 50,000 to invest or they have lots of them, they're not going to give you all their money and they don't know you and they haven't closed a deal with you. There's not, I mean, like, just like you and I, we wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, nor would you. So I say that as a, just a quick lesson for folks listening that may want to raise money and work with private money. Um, just start building relationships with them. And that's really how we were able to present this project to others. And then I think we got some other uh, newer investors. Something else I'd recommend is how we were able to find more people is to start just adding education, just be an educator out there, whether it's through a YouTube channel, podcast, be a thought leader, share, give your knowledge. So at what- 
At what point in your career, how many units did you have when you started raising money for other pro for your projects? I would say we, it was 2000 and it was right before, it was right after the crash. Uh, beyond friend, beyond our family, I always like to say, because I feel like that's a little, not you're cheating, not because you treat them as investors, but you know, family's a little different than people that are not related to you. Right. right. I always say, because it's, you know, the, the, the trust level and just, um, it was a pro probably about five years, five years into us, our, our investing kind of career. And, um, I say we had about 40 units. Mm-hmm. So you, you already had a track record and you felt comfortable. Um, and what type of project was the first time that you raised? Like, were you it's doing small, it for small multis? Small multi. It was a small multi. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a duplex. And no, it was two single family homes that they sold uh, together. But it was actually mm -hmm. two single family, two bedrooms, two bedroom, two one and a two one. And, uh, and it was a gentleman I went to graduate school with. And I met him over coffee about something else. And we started talking. And at that point, we kind of, deployed, you know, the friends and family, our money was invested. It was just, we were at a pretty much a, at a stagnation. So we knew in order to grow, we had to get creative and people get creative in different ways. But our strategy was to say, okay, how can we do this with others? And, and then with that particular deal, um, it was $50,000 down payment, very different deal, very, you know, mm -hmm. small. And I always say, recommend to people, you know, partner with people on small deals. You don't, is it, partnership doesn't have to start on a big deal, especially if you don't have that experience. Started a small deal. He put up 50,000. We became partners. He had an active role in the, in the company. We kind of, he did some things, but we were the feet on the street. You know, we, we pulled the contractors in. There's a classic Burr strategy mm -hmm. where we need to renovate. It was dilapidated, put, you know, renovated it and everything and then got tenants in and refinanced it. But, um, he's still an investor with us, that gentleman, you That's know, 10, awesome. 10 years later. So, because, you know, it was, it was one of those successful projects. We were able to pull the money out, it, pay, pull his 50 out and do it again and again and, and again. again. Absolutely. All right. So going back to the 49 units yeah. that we were talking about, what is your exit strategy for that one? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because most people, as we've kind of grown into the syndication world, most people think like long-term investing, buy and hold, I'll have it forever. But a lot of these syndications and a lot of these projects, a lot of these funds are more structured. A lot of them have like a five to seven year time frame where you're really trying to add the value, uh, you know, increase the value, increase the revenue, increase, you know, impl implement your business plan, and then be able to either refinance, get your investors money back, or even some of their money back and keep the asset or sell the asset and, and, and do it, you know, do it over and over again. So a lot of these projects, a lot of, especially the, um, the 18 unit we did sell and it was within, it was in four years. Mm -hmm. Um, the, and it was just the right timing is the right, right buyer, that kind of thing. But the 49 unit, we still hold, um, we're, we're in the process with that particular building where I guess we're about year five. We're in the process of refinancing or we want to refinance, but, and we've gotten the building, you know, we've increased the value, but we have a, um, raw piece of land that's connected to our site. So we're actually working with a partner to, um, to add units, uh, you know, add another building to, to that, to that, um, that raw land. So we're in a different strategy, whereas we're not looking to sell anytime soon. And we've had people like, you know, we're actually just going to create more value, utilize our space and utilize our, the raw land. And then, you know, then refinance the whole thing and then probably hold it for, for a number of more, you know, probably at least five or six year, years. I would like that to be one of those ones we have forever, you know, me, you know, where we have a hold in and we're part owner, right? We don't own the whole thing, but um, it's one of those really great assets that 
that I wouldn't want to sell, to be honest with you, you know? Um, but yeah, the investors, some of them want to get out. So when you refinance, you could start buying investors out, redeploying their money. You know, it all depends on what your operating agreement says. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of these larger projects, um, a lot of the folks want to, um, you know, get their money working. They, but if they get, if you give their money back, they want, they want their money to be working for them. So it always depends on, again, what your business plan is and what your op, how you're operating it. But at least with that building, we're, we took the side of not selling, but actually just building and adding more value to it. Right. And right now it's kind of a, a weird time to try to refinance, right? Because banks are tied. They don't want to give you money on, on refinances. So it's a, it's a good option to just keep adding value to, yeah. to that property. Absolutely. So when you started with this, um, with this um, 49 unit, was it the time frame five years, 10 years? Have, did you have to extend this exit? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. When we, when we first projected like, you know, we presented this to investors, you know, it's always like five to seven years. So as we've kind of read, you know, kind of re strategize, because at the time, even at that moment, we didn't know we were going to be building and, you know, all those sort mm -hmm. of things um, and refinancing. So yeah, you just keep, you keep communicating to your investors and um, say, this is what we're, what we're doing. And if, and if people um, want to be bought out or, you know, those sort of approaches or sell their shares, all that's laid out in the, the operating agreement. The time frame you're giving people is like, is really like a, not, a, I want to say a loose time frame by any means. It's not like this made up time frame, but it's like a projection. So it's not by any means in the operating agreement. Like, Hey, if we don't sell within five to seven years, you know, X, Y, and Z happens. It's not that formal. Um, but it's, it's just a typical approach with these projects. But when it, when the business plan shifts and there's more of an opportunity to add more value, um, you know, you can kind of shift, shift that a bit and then communicate to your investors what the plan is. And then, you know, and then as long as it's within the operating agreement, you know, that's, that's, so you always go back to the operating agreement. You always go back to, okay, what did we all sign? And some investors, um, in all the years we've been doing this, we had one, we had one investor who said they, they, you know, they wanted a refund. And we're like, okay, first off, this is not a refund. <laughs> right. So you didn't, you know, and, and so you have to educate people too. I think that's a big part of this. Um, if you're not working with someone who isn't an accredited investor who's savvy, they, they don't know. So they right. don't know what they're signing half the time. You got to explain this stuff to folks. Um, and I, I just am a big fan of that because it's part education, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and all those sort of things. So, um, but we, we, we were able to work with the person, this one particular person who really needed their money back and legally and from an operating agreement, we didn't, it was in the project. We didn't need to, to do anything beyond, hey, this is what we agreed to. But we worked with them and we had another investor who ended up buying their shares. So we kind of did the right thing to, to support this person. But I just say the key there is you have to know everything written in terms of timeframes and, you know, there's a plan and then there's like what's in writing and what's in the operating agreement. So absolutely. Productivity hack. All right. So now I would love for you uh, to share with us a productivity hack that has taken you to the, ne the next level in your business. Sure. So, so one of our, one of our, our, our lifeline and our lifeblood is, is uh, working with investors, working with folks who, who see us in different places and want to be part of our projects. And I, you know, we were doing a lot of that manually. Someone would say, Hey, I want to learn more about you. You know, and so, so you start to get a little overwhelmed with emails or like, you know, it just gets overwhelming. So we had worked with one of our investors who's really savvy with Podio and we created an automated process through Podio uh, that you can pretty much have that email chain happen without you having to, and I, and I know this seems so obvious and so many people do these kinds of things, but the time we did it, which was about two years ago, 
I was not automating anything, you know? So um, that's been great where people will come in, fill out on a form, they, they, you know, and then by the time they get on the phone, typically my husband's usually that, that first point of contact with, the, with just connecting with people, what are your goals? Um, we know what their investment goals are. We know what they're looking to get out of it. Um, I'm a big fan of automating those things that can be automated. And then obviously conversations and getting to know someone and building relationships. That's not, you can't automate that. You have to be on the phone. You have to connect. Um, we want to, right? I, I want to, I mean, anyone we inv invest with us, I want to, we want to be able to talk to, make sure it's a win-win, right? I mean, someone's like, I got my last $25,000 and I want to invest it with you. Yeah, don't I give know. it to us, please <laughs> don't, you know, yeah, save that money. On that money. I don't want that money. I don't want that on my conscience. You know, I want you to have your own, I want you to have money to have a safe net. So my point is saying that you wouldn't know that necessarily from a, from a, a survey form. You, you know, these things. Uh, by building the relationship and who knows how you could both support each other. So that's been a great hack is to really cut down on like the, you know, the stuff we were doing back and forth, back and forth. When can you talk to, when you, this is like crazy, you know, whereas now it's an automated process. So. Awesome. All right. Expert tips. So now we come to the part of the show where you're going to give me your three expert tips. And Liz is going to talk about building your investor base. So three expert tips on building your investor base. So the first, the first most important thing is to build a track record as quickly as you can. And you may have experience with investing in various projects. We'll start to document that stuff. You know, what was the, what was the time frame? What did you do? Um, you know, uh, how much money was spent, how much, what returns were there, even if it was your own return, right? And that's okay. Um, so you got to start documenting that stuff because any investor wants to know their biggest question mark, can I trust this person? Will I get my money back? You know, and, and, you know, and, and ultimately, will they protect my money? They want returns, but really when it comes down to it, somebody wants to make sure they're going to get the money back. You, right. You know, so it's so. more important to, to not lose the money than to make money. Uh, well, you know, I think both are important, but if you had to prioritize it, protecting money and then being able to make money for that person, they're both important. I don't mean to say the other thing's not important, but I think the protection of their asset, the protection of that, of that nut is always the forefront. And then obviously, okay, what kind of returns people care about returns, obviously. And there's so many people out there that you can work, that people could work with in terms of, you know, syndications, this and that. But the relationship's important. Are these people good people? You know, are they going to communicate with me? Do they have a communication plan? So when you're at, you know, the first, the first tip is definitely build yourself a track record. I want you to give another tip around that. If you want to start getting into apartment buildings, well, start, you don't have to be the operator of an apartment building. Start working with a team who's doing this. There's so many different great, there's a lot of great people out there. I know a lot of them who are doing this. They're operators. They need things. They need help. They need either money. If they're getting into larger projects, they certainly need money. Um, they mean, mean, need other things. So you can start being part of that team and that's starting to build your track record. You don't have to say I was the general partner of that project, but maybe you get a little slice and then you can start building that track record. And there's maybe, it's not about the percentage, but it's about the experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what investors really want to know. Um, they don't want to know that you've read a lot of books. They want to, they don't care that you've <laughs> listened to a lot of podcasts. I mean, I love podcasts. I run one, obviously. What they really want to know is what have you closed? What have you done? So you have to speak to that. And if you don't have it, go find it, go add value to someone else's team. Mm 
So that's number one. Number two, I'd say communication is everything with, with investors. Um, whether you under communicate, whether you over communicate, people want to be communicated to. They want to know how their, their money is doing. Um, not when they have to ask for it. Okay. Proactively. Um, we send out a monthly newsletter during COVID during like the heightened COVID. I mean, I know we're still in the new normal now. Um, we were sending two communications out a month, two, not one, two, every other week to update our investors. Cause whatever was on everyone's mind is how's my asset doing? We're, we're hearing that there's, there's, um, strikes going on. People are being told not to pay the rent. Right, some of the mm -hmm. some of the areas that we own property, they were tenants were being told not to pay the rent. So obviously, our investors in those areas were like scratching their head, like, "What's going on here?" So um, I just I would always say over communicate. Have a communication plan that you communicate to people. I don't care if you have one investor or two hundred investors. You need a communication plan and needs to be consistent. And you need to think how do I how do I overserve these folks? How do I add value to their lives, not just the money but you know, their lives. I think that's a big question that we've asked and we're continually trying to figure out. So that's the second tip. Third tip would be start small. I know there's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of people that say, go buy a hundred unit apartment building. Um, I think we took, we took an especially long time, me and my husband, I, I'd say, but you know, we learned a lot along the way. We had some bumps um, and I'm very proud of our, our, our experience. I'm proud of our path. Um, had we focused, we would have maybe been a little further along, you know, as, as we've grown. But my point in saying is to start small is to learn what you need to learn. And, and you can only learn that on a, on a smaller deal, unless you're part of a team and you can go take down a hundred unit apartment building. Good for you. But I'm a big fan of starting small and just, you know, you know, losing 10,000 is very different than losing a hundred thousand or a million. And, and as you get bigger, the zeros are on there, are on that you know dollar amount. So the chance of losing more is higher, right? I mean, we've lost money small and 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 big, and and I can tell you that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to deal with the larger stuff if I hadn't gotten experience on the smaller stuff. That's just been me. That's my experience. But I don't know. I think it's a great recommendation for people: get your feet wet, get experience, own it, know it, and then expand. So. That's the third one. I, I love that because I that's the, the same way that I feel. I, I feel like if you start small, you're gonna learn gradually and the mistakes are not gonna be as big as yep. you know, uh, if you start from a big unit. I mean, if you can start with big, um, even better. But um definitely, you know, starting small for me is the way. Yeah. Thank you so much, Liz. This was amazing. I think my audience is going to be uh, learning so much from this episode. Uh, so tell us, where can people find you online? Sure, sure. So a um, couple places, you know, obviously the real estate invest her. Uh, that's where Annette and I connected and, and it's been, been wonderful. Um, we have also, uh, you know, we weekly podcast comes out on Fridays and we interview only women, great women that are doing this business and in the trenches, as we say. Um, we also have a community that we're building. So you can find us on Facebook. Just uh, type in the Real Estate Investor Community. It's a free Facebook group where people are just supporting each other and you're able to promote yourself. You're able to share what's coming up for you, whatever is happening. Uh, but yeah, the realestateinvestor.com is probably the best way. And we're on Instagram um, and, and in Facebook. So those are the two places. And also YouTube. We're on YouTube. We're in YouTube as well. We're, we're doing some, trying to get, get more active there too. Amazing. Thank you so much. This is amazing. And everybody, make sure that you listen to the Real Estate Investor podcast. They have amazing episodes. And I share um, the goal of, of 
promoting more women in real estate. I try to get a lot of women in my podcast uh, so that they can share and we can watch each other grow and, uh, and see other women as an example as well, because sometimes it is a little bit of a men's world and it's so nice and refreshing to see other women doing it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. This was Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com, where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.